Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How goes? I'm doing pretty great, <laughs> considering it's the dead of winter and I get to wear snow pants every day, and that means only one outfit per week. <laughs> I mean, I it is the dead of winter and I played capoeira outside because it's hot out here now, <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh-huh. Same, same, uh-huh. same, 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 <laughs> same. <laughs> Man, uh, I feel like every week it's like either the week went by super fast or the week went by super slow. And I think that this week is one of those super fast weeks where not a lot happened. But when I was listening back to our show from last week, I realized there was something that I didn't mention before that maybe our listeners have more information about than we do. And so I just want to put it out there in case folks know a little bit more about this than we do. So last week we mentioned briefly how the travel restrictions from Canada related to COVID are directed specifically at Mexico and the Caribbean. And we didn't really go into it, but it is strange isn't it, dear listeners, that those are the two places that they chose and nowhere Mm. else, even though, you know, there's uh, a lot of danger coming from Brazil right now. There's a lot of danger coming from South Africa. There's a lot of danger coming from the UK. Why Mexico and the Caribbean? Um, And the, the only thing that I can think that kind of overlaps that is that that is where we get the majority of our temporary foreign workers who pick our food. I know that there is an exception to their travel, but I don't know if that is related in some way. Um, And if anybody does know, I would love it if you folks could let us know what that's about, because it is quite curious uh, that those are the two places that they chose. It is curious. And um, it's worth maybe mentioning as well, in case people haven't seen this in the news, because it's kind of fallen off of the news. But In November, just as uh, hundreds of temporary foreign workers, seasonal agricultural workers, were about to go home after the season, uh, specifically Norfolk, Haldeman, Norfolk County in southwestern Ontario, um, hundreds of of workers got stranded in Canada because of new outbreaks. And there was one farm in in particular called the Shiler Farms, which is an apple farm, that got a lot of attention within the press. Um, The owner, Brett Shiler, actually tried to um, challenge uh, the government's public safety protocols and, and and say that he didn't have to like do certain things to his bunkhouses or provide his workers with different kinds of protections. And so that just kind of gives you an idea of what kind of folks these are. Um, but, th- but there were um, at least 100 workers from Trinidad who were not able to go home in November because of a new outbreak of COVID. And since November... There has been other issues that have arised that has stopped them from being able to go to Trinidad. And so last week, 18 people went home and the rest, so dozens and dozens, I'm not exactly sure how many folks are just staying in Canada, worried that they're not going to be able to get home and then get back in the current crisis. And it's just so disgusting, I guess, that we don't know much about this situation, that it's fallen out of the news, and that these workers um, are relying on governments to just kind of like extend uh, short-term 
relief measures. And so one short-term relief measure is that they're able to apply for EI. And that measure was um, put into place six weeks ago, and it expires next week from the federal government. It's like, why are we such a callous and cruel country to the people that we rely on to, like, get food to our tables? And where's the attention on this? It's so it's so sad and unacceptable. Yeah, it really is. Um, before we get into our main topic for today, Nora, do we have some people to thank? Yes, we do. I want to thank this week Jody, Crystal, Mira, and Peter. Thank you so much, folks. Thank you so much for your support. And now also because we are recording this on Super Bowl Sunday. Nora, how are you feeling about how the Super Bowl is going? <laughs> um, well, okay. On, I'll be. This is my positive side. Um, people have made a lot of very delicious-looking snacks today, and have put those snacks on the internet. And I could go for some of those snacks. <laughs> I mean, I only really clued into the fact that it was Super Bowl Sunday because Nora, when I called her, was like, are you are you into the Super Bowl thing? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's why everyone's talking about football on the internets today. Yeah, we're, we don't care. But 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 um, one just what one little thing, just one tiny little just a little small thing that I do want to say. So apparently I'm seeing this on the Twitter box. This poet. Amanda Gorman, who did the inaugural poem at um, Biden's inauguration, she apparently performed a poem at the beginning of the Super Bowl also. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know that the Super Bowl was the poem kind of spot. I didn't, I didn't know that that's what regularly happened at the Super Bowl. I didn't know it was a place for like deep literary, you know, <laughs> contemplation. But also, can I just say, a lot of people were like really into her poem that she did at the inauguration, most of which I did not watch because I, I like could not care. I could not care. But then I did watch it because everyone was talking about it. And then I like immediately concluded that I just don't understand poetry because I don't understand like I don't if somebody could please please tell me why that was impressive like I would just I would like to know <laughs> as, as someone who just doesn't fucking get it I would like to know why that was impressive I thought it was a lot of platitudes that didn't make any sense and so now you know there's this this really young black woman who um as I understand it uh, used to have a stutter. So I think that that's part of the reason why she was chosen for the inauguration, um, because it's, uh, you know, that mirrors Biden's experience, I suppose. Uh, and now she's being kind of paraded around to these different places. And I think the, you know, the NFL um, uh, having her uh, perform is, I, is supposed to be some sort of mea culpa to the, to the way that they've engaged with black people before. I'm not sure. Anyway, I just think it's really awful how they're using this young woman and also I don't fucking get it I just I don't get it I didn't think it was that impressive I don't know if you watched it Nora but I just I don't get it and it's perhaps it's just that I don't get poetry but I don't think that's it because there is some poetry that I can really really fucking appreciate I just think that the amount of po poetry that is special um I think I think the world I, I just think there are some times where people are like, man, so deep when it's not. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. 
Right, right. I can't, I can't explain it. Um, I'm kind of in the same position as you are. I will say that I'm, I was very impressed with an interview that Gorman did with um, Anderson Cooper, where she was so charming and sharp that he like blushed and was like awkward through the whole interview. <laughs> oh, I like that. You should check that out. That was what I, that actually really endeared me to her a lot. I think that you know sh- she's obviously quite sharp, and um, her performance uh, people, yeah, people really loved the rhythm and meter that she used in that speech, in that poem, and. Um, but I'm not sure it goes much deeper than that for me in my analysis because I, I do agree with you. Although this whole situation has made me think a lot about someone named Pierre Desruisseaux. Mm-hmm. Do you know Do you know Pierre Desruisseaux? No. So he <laughs> he was Canada's poet laureate and was most famous for writing poems where he <laughs> stole the text. Of um of pieces of art from Maya Angelou and Tupac. Oh yeah, was he black? No, 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 no. And and he then wrote it in French, and so no one noticed that he just plagiarized oh, from my them. God, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not. No, I've I, ever since the the poet laureate stuff has been out there since the inauguration. I've just been non-stopping about thinking about him and how amazing it is that he like just took some Tupac lyrics and was like. Eh bien, voilà, voilà mon, euh, mon poème que j'écris moi-même. Euh, c'est surtout pas Maya Angelou, ça c'est certain. <laughs> What the fuck? That is awful. And again, one more thing before we get into our main topic tonight. It also, it, this is a good pivot because it also has to do with political poetry. Did you see that Selena Caesar Chavan had some expletives? To dole out <laughs> to our dear prime minister. <laughs> oh, I I did I did see this, and I I want you to explain it. But I just want to say before you explain it, like I read this with um this deep memory of sitting in meetings with Trudeau and not being able to like say something like this and being like, oh yeah, that is really great. Yeah. So uh, Selena Caesar Chavan, who if you don't know. I'll just remind you, was a former MP who had a very public breakdown in relationship with um, uh, Justin Trudeau, and she was a member of the Liberal Party. Uh, And she has now written a book that has come out this week. And the big story coming out of that book is is, um, sort of the, the her telling of her breakdown uh, in relationship with our dear Prime Minister Trudeau. And part of that, um, during that breakdown in relationship, was her being uh, fully forthcoming with her words in um, responding to some childish ridiculousness in the way that he responded to her uh, as a Black woman who he was trying to use to portray the Liberal Party and the government in a particular way. Anyway, look that up. It is kind of hilarious and kind of like you know as I was reading it I was like yes okay me too I also Mm -hmm. wanted to call him a little motherfucker or whatever it was (laughs) she actually (laughs) said I can't recall that may not be exactly it but it you know it's close it's close um because he's a little twerp so that's that Mm -hmm. One more piece of news. I really want to make sure folks are paying attention to what's going on in the north part of Baffin Island. 
So hunters from Pond Inlet the uh, this past week blocked the air strip um, to protest the expansion of the Mary River iron ore mine. And, you know, we don't get much news in southern Canada of what's going on in northern Canada. And certainly, you know, folks, we've heard from our listeners that you want to hear Sandy Nora talk more about uh, politics in, in northern Canada. Well, um, we're not doing our episode on this, but um, like this resistance is really, really important. So if you haven't seen anything about what's going on or you want to continue to watch what happens next because the protests have continued since the first um, blockade was, um, was was established this past week at the at the airport, um, watch watch that. Make sure that you're, you're paying attention to news uh, on Baffin Island. And um, if there's an update next week, we will mention it. Okay, so that was a lot of preamble, but what are we actually talking about tonight? We are talking about the fact that Canada has deemed the Proud Boys, or has added the Proud Boys, to its list of terrorist organizations. Yay! Oh my god, huge victory! That's so awesome! Good thing, right, Nora? Good thing! Um, the, the, what I just mentioned, folks blocking access to a mine, uh, by mine operators is like terrorism in the Canadian government's eye. So is this a good thing? Um, we have a, had a lot of folks ask us to unpack why it's not a good thing. And so we're going to do that on this episode. And I want people to remember, um, like the right of indigenous people to protect, to resist, um, to to force off uh, development from traditional territories and how that has been so viciously criminalized in Canada from the beginning of the existence and before of Canada and how whenever we talk about what is terrorism in this country, uh, we have to be very aware that, you know, for left-wing people, we wouldn't see folks at 1492 Landback Land Lane or at Wet'suwet'en or uh, the Tiny House Warriors. Um, we wouldn't see them as terrorists, but we are not the ones that decide that the state absolutely does. So, Sandy, what happens when we get the Proud Boys on the terrorist list? Isn't this a victory? It's actually, it's not a victory um, because here's here's what's happened, right? Like the Proud Boys could have been added to any sort of list or any sort of um, a way that the government uh, wanted to engage with white su- violent white supremacy at any time that they wanted. But they, they waited until this moment. And what did they do? They added the Pr- Proud Boys, but they didn't just add the Proud Boys, actually, which is what didn't make the news. What Who they added were... And this is not for me to make a comment on what any of these organizations are. I just want you to know. Um, Adam Waffen Division, The Base, The Proud Boys, Russian Imperial Movement, Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam wal Muslimin, Front de Liberation du Messina, Ansar Dine, Islamic State West Africa Province, Islamic State, Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, Islamic State in Libya, Islamic State East Asia, and Islamic State Bangladesh, Hezbollah, Mujahideen. Those are the full list of organizations that Canada added to the list, um, which, curiously enough, not all of that got a lot of news. But is it 
surprising that the majority of the list uh, actually tends to be organizations that come from a particular part of the world. How does that interact with those of us here? Look, the government of Canada uh, is not is doesn't do investigative terrorist uh, work uh, with like the Proud Boys or white supremacist organizations. They don't. What they do do is use these types of lists to impact and investigate uh, particular identities in Canada. And this is something that, um, you know, Nora and I have some direct experience with as, you know, as the genocide in Tamil Elam was happening in 2009, there were a lot of Tamil students that we were working with in the student movement who all of a sudden were being watched and stalked by CSIS. Like they would go to uh, have a meal at a restaurant and be interrogated by CSIS agents. And part of that was because of an organization that Canada had put on the terror list and then used that as a justification for investigating and interrupting the lives of particular people who had nothing to do with those things. The way that Canada operationalizes this idea of the terrorist subject is very racialized. No matter, it doesn't matter that they've put the Proud Boys on the list. That is not going to change. No, and the the Tigers are still on the list. Um, the, I don't think the, they are. The I LTTE, think they removed them. I am looking at it. Really? The liber yeah, the LTTE is still on the list, unless like the government hasn't updated what they have oh. here. But you know, uh, under currently listed entities, uh, the the LTTE is there. The World Tamil Movement is there. There are four Palestinian liberation organizations on this list, and they also have organizations like the Kurdistan Workers Party, the PKK, which had been in the news for being you know one of the like it's a it's a, a national liberation organization for a, an independent Kurdish state, which had been working with the United States at some point during the, their fight against the Islamic State. Like th- this whole process of identifying an organization as being a terrorist organization, as you said, Sandy, there are other ways to deal with this stuff. And not just that there are other ways, but the other ways are like already very clearly defined in the Criminal Code of Canada. So let's take any of these far right, violent white nationalist organizations. Like last time I checked, hate crimes are are already in the Criminal Code. Like it's already illegal to do violent things uh, that that are racially motivated and racially targeted, and yet. Like now they're on this list. And so what? They won't be able to open bank accounts. They'll be surveyed more like as if like the government hasn't done fuck all to stop these organizations as they've been rising in the last many, many years. And all of a sudden now they will because they're on this terror list. It's it's a very confusing um, victory that a lot of uh, folks, especially in, in the NDP, are claiming. And the reality is, is that when we continue to like beef up a terror, like the idea of terrorism through this formal legal framework that the federal government has, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and one of the best mm-hmm. ways to look at this is 
the the shooting in Quebec City, which, you know, everyone would agree was a terrorist act, mm-hmm. right? You walk into a mosque and you shoot people who are in prayer. That is a terrorist act. And Bissonnette was not charged with terrorism. And the reason that he was not charged with terrorism was because it was such a clear act of first-degree murder that if they had gone with trying to say that it was five or six or 40 or whatever number of charges of terrorist violence, there was a chance at trial that they wouldn't actually be able to convince a judge that it was terrorism because the definitions are all over the place, because, you know, certainly the Western world has one conception of terrorism that doesn't tend to be white male violence. But it was just too much of an unknown, whereas the first degree murder charge was a slam dunk. And the difference between these two charges, other than the rhetorical difference or the difference that would signal to Canadians about charging someone like Bissonnette with terrorism or charging him with first-degree murder, wasn't actually very material because in the end, the, the, the sentences were the exact same. So then you have to say, well, then what the fuck is the point of having these terrorist charges at all if the act that they're committing is already covered by the criminal code and is already something that you can prosecute and you can try and get some level of justice without necessarily trying to define the act within some sort of um, flawed political reasoning. And I feel like, you know, like in the frustration that so many people have that there's been nothing done to fight far-right violence, I know that people have been excited to see this happen. But, like, for what? For for, for what? Especially considering I look at this list and certainly, I mean, I can think of a whole bunch of other organizations that under the same, like, like level of terrorist activity could easily be, be there or should be there, including mm-hmm. groups that have done street violence like in Quebec City. But again, they were charged with hate crimes the last time someone was violently attacked in a in a in a targeted, violent, racist uh, attack. And so, like, what exactly does this does this give us other than legitimizing this whole global fight against terrorism? What it gives the government is uh, cover to be able to perhaps infringe on what is generally people's protected um, rights as a result of, of, um, of responding to this list, right? And so is it okay that CSIS officers were following around innocent Tamil students in 2009 and 2010? No, it's not. But because of this anti-terrorism law and this list that's created, the government has cover to be able to do those things. And... What the list allows, and I'm just reading specifically uh, directly from the website um, of uh, Public Safety Canada, is that there are consequences to being listed. That means that the entity's property can be subject of seizure slash restraint and or forfeiture. Institutions such as banks, brokerages, um, et cetera, are subject to reporting requirements with respect to these entities' properties and must not allow those entities access to the property. And these institutions may not deal or otherwise dispose of property, which is, okay, it is an offense to knowingly participate in or contribute to directly or indirectly to any of the activities of these groups. Cool. So who is being, who, again, like there's, uh, there's thresholds 
in criminal law to deal with these types of things. There's thresholds already uh, under hate crime law to deal with these sorts of things. But this gives a new threshold, and that threshold is racialized. It's a racialized threshold. And that is the very reason why you don't see a lot of white supremacist groups on these lists, even though they are the most dangerous <laughs> terrorists um, that we uh, that are currently really, really active in both Canada and the United States. Um, but our government doesn't take white supremacy seriously, whether it's violent white supremacy or the the latent type of white supremacy that exists in our government every that just exists in the way that our government functions. And so this what's happening right now is a by naming the proud boys at this time when people are really interested in seeing some sort of accountability, some sort of consequence to people who have uh, uh, involved themselves in the proud boys or proudly call themselves proud boys or are proudly a part of a white supremacist group that is being used to justify the fact that this list exists. But this list, this list has really harmed racialized people and is a part of legitimizing um, this kind of post 9-11 world where specific types of people are able to uh, be looked at with a higher level of scrutiny uh, from the state, from police, from the RCMP. And that's what's happening here. Do we really think that by putting Proud Boys on this list, that's going to change um, the Canadian government's uh, relationship to or interest in preventing white supremacist violence from organizing in Canada. Is this the measure of doing that? I I don't think that it is. I don't think we're going to start seeing the government start to um, uh, you know try to investigate within our police forces and military, all of the white supremacist activity that's going on there. I just, I hazard a guess that that is not what's going to happen as a result of uh, putting the Proud Boys on this list. But I do think that all of the rest of these organizations that remain on the list, uh, that is going to continue to have a negative effect on racialized people, innocent racialized people that have nothing to do with these lists in Canada. Yeah, I encourage everybody to check this list out. It is so, like, <laughs> it like more than half of the organizations like have some sort of adjacent tie to Islam, jihad, something like that, and it is exactly as you just described. Like, this helps to create this this terrorism moniker or, or designation in this country that only causes harm right it only causes harm it causes harm to um to 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 muslim communities to muslims themselves it justifies other kinds of legislation and other kinds of harassment um and you know i think about the situation of someone who um got caught up in canada's legislation terrorist legislation um and this is someone whose name is ahmed abbasi uh abbasi was a student in quebec city and he um, went home for a family event to Tunisia. While he was home, his student visa was canceled. 
And what he didn't know was that the Canadian government canceled his visa quietly while working with the United States to try and entrap a bunch of people saying that they wanted to commit jihad. And this was, this was you, folks will remember maybe the Via Rail bombing plot. So it was adjacent to that. So this is a third person who was arrested in that situation. And so he's home in Tunisia and he has to get back for his studies. He's a, a student, right, P- doing his PhD and um, can't get any answers, D- doesn't know what's going on. Months pass. He doesn't understand why his student visa just out of nowhere got canceled. Then he gets contacted by this mysterious fellow from the United States and is like, oh, I hear you've got problems trying to get back into Canada. I have a real estate state business or something like this. If you come to the United States, you'll be able to enter Canada through the U.S. It'll be easier. And I'll arrange for you to come to the United States with no problem. And so he's like, that seems great. So he goes to the United States. He ends up in a penthouse in Manhattan for three days. And he is uh, recorded and he's there with these other uh, folks. um, And what he doesn't realize is that the whole thing is set up by the CIA, including CIA informants. And for three days, he's like cajoled and convinced and talked, you know, talking about his desire to engage in jihad. And this guy has like no interest or discussion. He's not a political guy. He was just like, what the hell is going on? At the end of these three days, he gets arrested and he gets thrown into solitary uh, for about 10 months while his case makes its way through the American courts. And in the end, um, it was clear that he was being entrapped by the CIA with the help of the Canadian government and um, ended up being charged with um, immigration fraud because, of course, you can't just go to another country and then try to enter Canada. And, um, And it ruined his life. And he never came back to Canada. And all of that was under the guise of fighting terrorism, right? It was such, and I was very close to this case. It was so disgusting and horrible to see his life be ruined um, because of forces beyond his control, because of his student visa being like inexplicably canceled by the Canadian government. And these kinds of tricks are how like the Canadian state apparatus plays around with these terms and uses the justification that is that is latent within a list like this to um, to be able to harass and and, and cause harm to, to, to people like like Abbasi and to to then to to think that adding the proud boys to this list is going to do fucking anything positive it it just kind of it's like like at best it's politically naive and at worst it's like literally feeding the anti-terror uh, narrative, the anti-terror uh, apparatus that you know the NDP is supposed to be opposed to. And that's what I've been confused the most is just how hard the NDP has been making this into a victory. Yeah, I really, you know, I I appreciate that people were uh, perhaps jolted out of a sense of uh, generally here, nothing here close to, you know, Canada, the West, the North, the United States, whatever. Um, you know, we don't generally get jolted out of our sense of safety. And I appreciate that people are like super concerned coming out of what happened uh, at the Capitol in the United States. Yes, that is concerning. We should have been concerned from a long time ago (laughs) about Mm -hmm. uh, the strength of white supremacist organizing and people want something to be done about it. But this is not the thing. Like I just, you know, people are hearing about this, think that it's good news. Please don't stop paying attention because this doesn't solve the problem. It, It really, really doesn't. I don't think this makes anything change. I do not think that the government 
um, or anyone uh, is thinking about coming up with some sort of plan to impact white supremacist organizing in this country. I don't. Because why don't I think so? Because I haven't seen it. It's so simple to be able to say, let's just put this on this list. Because people trust this list. People take a look at that list and they don't necessarily know that the list is like super political from a, you know, world politics perspective. It's like, okay, Canada was considering removing the Tamil Tigers from the list at some point in 2018, I believe. Um, And the uh, the European Union um, was considering in 2016. Well, we should we should uh, be dropping both the Tamil Tigers and Hamas from the terrorist list, and all of that is like you know about who these these wealthy states support, uh, what sides they support in geopolitical conflict, and often uh, Western and Northern states are not supporting. Uh, the side of people who are oppressed and subjugated. And a lot of the time, economics and finance has a, money has a lot to do with who gets supported and who doesn't. We have to be thinking about that when we're thinking about a terror, terror list. But, you know, the history of uh, 9-11 and everything that happened post 9-11 makes it really hard for uh, for for that sort of critical engagement with a list like this to come through um, in any sort of public discussion about it. Now, there's been some groups like uh, the BC Civil Liberties Association who's been doing a really good job of trying to be like, wait, hold up, wait a minute. This is not necessarily what we want because we have seen these lists really impact just average people. Like there was a case of a child, as I recall, who was like on the terror list and couldn't fly um for a while from mm-hmm. bc i i can't i don't know exactly the story and maybe one of our listeners can remind us or maybe nora you know the story and you can remind me but you know that's how these lists operate they operate to um to reinforce the fact that there is actually not just one level of like being a person living in canada there's like the level of uh you know are you a citizen and then there's the level of are you racialized? And then there's the level of, well, are you assumed to be dangerous in your racialization? You know, these these are the levels in which the state engages with us. And if you are a part of a, uh, if you are raced in a way that makes the government look at you and makes the state look at you with suspicion, lists like these terror lists justify the way that the state treats us differently and um, our level of freedom is different. Our level of freedom is different. And that's, you know, that is, affects indigenous people and affects black people. And if, it especially affects people who are racialized as Muslim, whether or not they're Muslim or not. Yeah, the no-fly list um, problems were, were a huge fallout from, from the 9-11 uh, state security reforms where it wasn't just like one child. There was, you know, if you found yourself on one of these lists, regardless of if you were a baby, um, flying anywhere was a, a nightmare. And actually, Sandy and I both know someone who had the same name, has the same name as a globally wanted terrorist. And the guy would have to get to the airport seven hours early every single time he flew anywhere just because he knew that he'd be harassed because he had the same name as this person. 
Um, I think it's really important to note that this list did not exist before 9-11. Like, this is literally mm-hmm. something that was constructed in the wake of the global and global fight on terror, which is like the West North American uh, and, and Western Europe uh, fight on terror. And so the list is a very contemporary list of who, as as you said, Sandy, who is our enemies, quote unquote, around the world, um, regardless of, of their level of um, violence. I mean, like the FARC is on the list and the FARC is now like engaging very differently than they did 20 years ago in Colombia, right? So this stuff changes and it's all highly political and it doesn't necessarily do what people I think maybe think it does or hope it hope it could do. Uh, and you 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 mentioned the, the BC Civil Liberties Association. I want to mention specifically Harsha Walia, who did so much work in the last couple of weeks to try and educate people about why this isn't an ideal a thing for for us to be you know fighting and demanding the federal government to to uh, to do, and you know I think that the best way to wrap this episode up is to just tie the connections of like what does terrorism look like in this country, and is it is it these these like large questions these geo global geopolitical questions of of alliances and enemies around the world within the. David Frum, you know, um, coined phrase, the axis of evil and all the organizations that that uh, implied. Or is it the fact that we have someone like Bill Blair, who's the public safety minister, who's overseeing something like this, right? Bill Blair (laughs) is the minister who oversees this list. Him and, I, you know, I know that he's kind of sharing the portfolio with uh, someone else who's I'm not remembering right now. It's not uh, Goodale anymore. But anyway, whatever. Bill Blair is is very involved with this, and uh, Bill Blair, of course, also oversees the G20. He also oversees, mm-hmm. um, oversaw. What am I saying? It's an interesting word. There. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Um, and and he he comes from the police, right? And so we want to talk about terrorism in this country. Like we need to start with the RCMP. We need to start with um, policing and the military and all of these state security apparatuses that have been built to make sure that people do not assert sovereignty or assert their own power or assert their rights. And when we when we talk about terrorism in this terror list, completely outside the fact of the, the outside of the context of the fact that the RCMP, for example, was literally founded to cause violence. Uh, against indigenous people in this country, then we don't actually have a real conversation about what terrorism looks like. Yeah, I think that, you know, um, the myriad of examples that we could point to of uh, people's land uh, and homes, communities being uh, eliminated and destroyed uh, for that, you know, continue to this day being eliminated and destroyed uh, because of the interests of the state uh, would qualify as as fucking, you know, acting in to inflict terror on communities of people. My God, the way that the, the homeless community has been engaged with during this pandemic and before this pandemic uh, the way that encampments have been completely destroyed, people's possessions um, taken from them, uh, I think that that would qualify. Uh, I I still cannot believe the fact that the you know the police, the Ontario Provincial Police, recently 
killed a baby and it it just didn't get that much news um and you know we're seeing this week there was a violent arrest that happened in Barrie and we don't we don't you know there's no engagement in the way that uh the the state inflicts terror upon these communities indigenous communities disabled communities black communities uh and uh homeless communities unhoused folks it's just like what what does this list do <laughs> it's just a justification to continue treating particular entities um with suspicion and interrupting their lives besides the list what is the plan what is the plan to deal with violent white supremacist organizing in Canada? The Proud Boys are not the only organization, not by a long shot. What's, what is the fucking plan? What's the plan? What are we going to do about it? Because putting people on a list like this, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything. They are not going to be putting resources towards... Um, you know, investigating in the places that we need them to investigate. And all the news that's coming out about how many police officers and military were involved in the attack on the Capitol on the 6th mirrors um, the type of news that we had seen earlier and previously in Canada about white supremacist organizing in the military and policing. So why don't we start there? That's what I would love to hear from a progressive party. Why don't we start there? <laughs> let's let's take a look at where these ranks really, really are truly organizing. But it, but we don't hear that because it's what too risky. It might be risky, but that's what we need, and we need a left wing party that's going to be bringing those things forward. Yeah, in the past week, Canadian police officers have shot someone in Toronto. They murdered someone in East Willembury. They had that violent arrest in, in Barrie that you mentioned, and um, that video has circulated online. I haven't seen much media about it. There's been news that the, that the officers who shot and killed that, that baby and that father have been not cooperating with police and have not, with uh, the SIU investigation, have not been interviewed yet. They've just refused. Someone has died two days ago from when we're recording this in police custody in Edmonton after having been picked up by Edmonton police. And last week, the officer who, who shot and killed Boney Jean-Pierre in Montreal was acquitted. And this is an officer who shot him in the head. So if we're going to talk about terrorism in this country, progressive people better be fucking talking about where the actual terrorism is coming from and not playing this game of trying to shoehorn right-wing terror, right-wing threats, into the way that Canada's state talks about about terrorism. 